Imagine waking up and losing your sight one day. That's what happened to author Vanessa Potter in 2012. Losing sight made Vanessa lead her to an experiment to tackle problems like sleep, anxiety and stress. Specific sleep challenges are based upon triggers, but what are those triggers and how might they be unique to each person? How is it linked to trust? What was Vanessa's sleep experiment? And imagine studying all of traditional practices through science. So she did an experiment where she recorded live brain activity and explored hypnosis, mindfulness, several modalities including Buddhist meditation, mantra chanting, transcendental meditation, vipassana, hypnosis, breathwork, kundalini yoga, mindfulness and even psychedelics. How might someone use bad sleep as a means to investigate and tease out all these hidden and unhelpful beliefs? What did the psychedelics do for Vanessa's mind? When it came to sleep, she found that one of these modalities was the clear winner. All of this in this episode of the Sleep Whisperer podcast. Vanessa Potter is an author, a TEDx speaker, meditation advocate. She became a human guinea pig for science when an extraordinary experience changed the course of her life. After spending 16 years as an award-winning producer, fate intervened when Vanessa found herself blind and paralyzed following a neurological illness. A deep curiosity to better understand the mechanics of her mind propelled her down a new science communication path. A number of science art collaborations with Cambridge neuroscientists led to an immersive EEG exhibition. Vanessa's second book, Finding Her Right Mind, One Woman's Experiment to Put Meditation to the Test, has just been released. So you can go out and grab your copy as we speak and all links are attached to the show. And as listeners, it really inspires us to hear from you. So even if you're feeling shy, just send me a mail, deepa at fighttothrive.com. Be sure to subscribe to the show so that you can get your favorite episode just as it launches. If you'd like to share someone who can be featured, make a personal introduction. Welcome to the Sleep Whisperer podcast. I'm your host, Deepa. Join me and my many expert guests and medical professionals from the cutting-edge science of functional medicine of the West and ancient wisdom of the East. Learn all about how to discover your root causes of poor sleep and understand the proper tools and techniques to end your confusion and begin getting a good night's sleep. It's time to regain hope and begin your sleep journey with the Sleep Whisperer podcast. Vanessa, welcome to the Sleep Whisperer podcast. It's a pleasure to have you and I've been really looking forward to our conversation and much like sometimes you feel a soul connect to somebody whom you've never met, I felt that way with you somewhere even on our mailing thread Uh, and I knew that this conversation was going to come from a space that is deeply Uh, from your heart to mine and then spreading it out to our listeners as well. Your story is really warm and touching and gives so much hope. I must tell you that when I watched your TED talk just a few days ago as I was researching for our conversation um, and you hadn't actually mentioned the TED talk to me in our um, communication so I just happened to Uh, look at it and I was frozen so I was really frozen to know that uh, what would have been potentially a space where somebody could have just spiraled down into 
dejection. And of course, you did go through all that, but coming from that space of losing your sight one fine day to where you are and your book is coming out right now, um, how did just share a little bit if you if you're comfortable with sharing a little bit about that journey just to give our listeners some hope and then also how that actually led to this uh, amazing experiment that you've done where you've actually looked at brain activity using different modalities and how that has actually translated to mean something in the space of sleep. And you have two full chapters dedicated to sleep in your new book as well. So would you mind sharing a little bit about that? Sure. So the story, if you like, my story started in 2012. And just to give a bit of a background, I was... Um, a busy mum. I had a full-time job as a television producer and I had two very small children. They were two and four. And I had some plans and of course fate came along and uh, threw them all out the window. I basically, it took three days. I, I went blind and paralyzed within the space of 72 hours. It was very shocking. It was due to a very, very rare neurological illness. And it was devastating. There is no other way. And it was one of those experiences that was life-changing. People say life-changing, but it really was. So I, during that time, started to use a lot of meditation. Actually, it started pretty much within sort of the first day because it dawned on me very quickly that whilst I had a team of doctors looking after me and an amazing, you know, group of family members, I was totally supported, but I kind of knew inside myself that I was going to have to heal myself, mm -hmm. that if I needed to control anxiety and fear and panic, which of course is surging through my body, they couldn't do that bit. That was me. And so that was one of the most profound learning experiences. And I did recover. It took a year. My sight slowly, slowly came back and the paralysis went, but I continued with the meditation and the meditation became a strategy, a savior. It was something that was so deeply rooted in me and I'd learned techniques um, from antenatal classes. So I, I wasn't a, a meditator before all of this. I had some tools and what was fascinating to me was how my mind intuitively dipped into that toolbox and picked out some specific tools. Now those were visualization, and that is where you visualize a beautiful place quite often. It can be anything. Uh, in my case, I visualized a beach and I also used self-hypnosis, which I had been taught during antenatal classes as well. And this is to induce a relaxed state and to uh, suggest to your own unconscious mind that you are in a calm, healing place. So those were my tools. And after my recovery, I got very curious. I wanted to understand what was actually going on inside my mind. And that sparked uh, an enormous uh, learning journey. I contacted scientists and at Cambridge University, and they were fascinated to hear my story. And we collaborated on a number of projects. And that's where I was introduced to EEG technology, which is brain recording re technology. Now, this is where you put tiny little electrodes on the scalp mm. and these record your live brain activity. And this can tell scientists a lot about the inside story, what's going on inside the mind in different states of mind. So whether it's a meditative state, a sleep state, an anxious state, they can start to identify and separate those out. So this is where the experimenting started because I was curious and I used, I suppose, my uh, own experience of this traumatic um, incident as a learning curve and as a springboard. I never went back to TV producing. And so I kind of decided that this tragedy had happened to me and I was going to turn it into something else. And that's what I did. I've turned it, my life into a whole experiment ever since. And as you say, sleep became a major feature in that. Um, one of the uh, symptoms I experienced with trauma was insomnia. Mm. And of course, insomnia, for those that suffer it, we know what it is. It's not a bad night. Insomnia is pervasive. It's soul destroying. 
at times it was worse. I say that actually, it it is true. It was worse than the sight loss at times. Yeah. So sleep has always been a very integral part of my, my research. It's something I'm very interested in. And so when I went to the scientists and I said, look, I'm really curious about the brain, you know this, I want to explore some more uh, mind training techniques. And I, one of the techniques I wanted to try was self-hypnosis for sleep. Um, the other techniques, there were 10 in total, but self-hypnosis was the one that I used um, specifically um, to target sleep. And we wanted to compare that actually to mindfulness to see which had an effect, you know, what could, um, what could help. I mean, Vanessa, I'm just getting goosebumps as you spoke about that, because I don't know if you've read this book um, called The Autobiography of a Yogi. Uh, and it talks about this beautiful intersection between science and spirituality. And that's exactly what you're actually talking about, where you're bringing some evidence-based um, realization to many ancient practices and bringing that intersection of uh, cutting edge science along with these excellent uh, tools from long, long ago. And uh, you did, I, at one part of your book, I read that the insomnia lasted several days in a row and you actually didn't sleep for uh, how much, 90 hours or something like that? Yeah. Yeah, um, people don't believe that actually. Mm. Um, I did not sleep for one second for four days. That was at the absolute height of post-traumatic stress disorder. So I had PTSD when I came home, which isn't remotely surprising given the kind of emotional car crash that I had just experienced. Losing two senses, I should probably explain, is a big shock for the body because yeah. we use our senses to orientate ourselves to actually know where we are. And my body had had so much data removed. Mm. I literally didn't know where I was. And, and at one point when I was at the worst, I almost felt like I, were, I, d I described it, I was a deep sea diver under the water and I didn't know what was up, what was down. Because of course, all my proprioceptors, all my senses that I used to, to for my body to say, you are upright, my vision, all of that had gone. So my body was in absolute turmoil and the mind can't process that kind of trauma at the time. So it waits and it slowly unfolds in this trauma response. And my body responded to that. And one of the things that I experienced was this sense of alert. So my body went on to high alert. It, the alarm bells were going, something terrible was happening. My life was threatened nobody could give me answers and so um my body kept me awake because we had to fight we had yeah. to fight this thing and so that's why it was in this um terrible spiral of insomnia um and that was that was devastating that was that was a really tough experience to go through so i have i have a lot of empathy for anyone who suffers that kind of all night insomnia because it's devastating, yeah. Yeah, yeah, I can understand that. And I can't even imagine actually going through four continuous nights of that. And uh, later you did discover that there were some specific triggers for you in terms of poor sleep and you would find yourself unable to sleep before nights of certain specific events. So could you share a little bit about uh, how you realized your triggers and then of course how did you get past them but also how what is the role that triggers play on anyone's sleep challenges how can somebody identify I mean obviously it's going to be unique and different to each one of us um, but you do put a lot of emphasis on triggers in the role of insomnia so talk to you about that yeah, I mean, what I've just described is my unconscious mind and my unconscious mind is looking after me. So that alarm bell pressing that it was doing for those four nights, it was doing to protect me. And I think that's one of the things that we need to always um, investigate and be curious about. 
you're quite right. Once I got past that stage, and I should say that my sleep then leveled out and went back to normal. And I was very lucky. I had a lot of support and the meditation and breathing techniques were really helpful. But you're quite right. I had a very specific trigger. And this came to light over the next few years because I did a lot of writing and I did a lot of speaking. And I had my Achilles heel, if you like, of sleep is public speaking. Now, like the millions of other people in the world that are utterly frozen with terror at the thought of speaking to, actually, it can be a small group of people or a thousand people. Uh, For a lot of us, it doesn't really matter. It's the idea of being exposed and on show. And this I knew I had, I'd had it all throughout my professional career. Um, But then I was invited, as you mentioned earlier, to give a TEDx talk. And I realized that I couldn't do that and have this fear because how the fear manifested in me is it meant the alarm bell was pressed again. And so I didn't sleep. So my body would be going, you've got this big talk. You have to stay up all night, practice. You have to be great. You have to be alert and awake. You have to be on it. You can't go to sleep. <laughs> and so I would not, and again, I would have a whole night. Now with a TED talk, you are timed. There's a big clock. What people don't always realize at the front of you is a huge clock with a countdown mm. and they time your talk to the minute, in fact, to the second. <laughs> so this is an enormous pressure and you have to be word perfect. You get one shot. You have to have a script that you've learned. So there's a lot of pressure. And my, my talk was to a thousand people with four cameras. And with a lot of technology involved, I had to run a whole PowerPoint presentation as well. So this is, I knew was going to tip me over the edge. So I used, um, I used some hypnotherapy. I went to a hypnotherapist to identify those triggers. And that was just so incredibly successful. So my triggers were, yes, you have to stay awake. You have to be on guard. You have to protect yourself. Um, but, but it was, it wasn't the talking, what we identified, and this is where it's interesting Sleep is so complex and multi-layered. It wasn't the talk, actually, that was stopping me sleeping. It was the fear of giving the talk. So I know that sounds like the same thing, but it's not. Mm. And we investigated that and um, actually separated out the sleep. And so the sleep became part of my program where I would listen to a recording that said, you are totally in control. You've learnt your script. You know what you're going to do. This is going to be an amazing experience. And now all you need to do is just sleep. Mm. And it worked. It worked absolutely brilliantly. Wow. I mean, I, I'm, I was just going to tell you in the middle of that, that I can totally relate to that because that was my absolute fear as well. I would panic at the thought of, Uh, addressing any gathering and it could be even just five students in my class in school and you'll be frozen you'll panic you have heart racing everything that's fight or flight in that state of emergency and I think a lot of people still go through that for several reasons and one thing came to my mind Vanessa and I wanted to quickly share before we get to the next uh, phase of our conversation is that in ancient yoga there is this uh, belief that when you practice inversions like the headstand Uh, It uh, resolves an area of the brain which is related to fear. So whatever you would find very, very scary for you would go away in time when you started a regular practice of a headstand. Uh, And one of the things that I would teach my students was, for me, it was the fear of public speaking. For you, it could be something else. But when you bring in the headstand every single day, Uh, It actually has a physiological connection to the area of the brain that's responsible for these kind of emotions. Um, But yes, talking to yourself and being able to resolve this is a, it's something that's a gift, I think, because not everybody can actually do that. Uh, So talk to us a little bit about your sleep experiment, because when I first came across this experiment of your journey and also I want you to tell our listeners what you called yourself. Uh, I didn't want to uh, spill that out. So I want you to say why you call yourself patient XXX and um, 
um, just tell us about that experiment where you actually measured uh, brain activity through different modalities and interventions and what did you actually find? So um, I called myself patient H69 because when all of this started, so we're going back in time now to post uh, paralysis and post blindness, I started writing a blog and I didn't want to put my own name at the top of that. So I kind of looked around and I had a lot of hospital letters, not surprisingly, mm. and my national health service, my NHS hospital number had the, the numbers H69 in it. So I became patient H69 and in fact that ended up um, being the title of my first book. Um, it was something that got very associated with me and um, has been a very useful sort of screen. I don't use it quite so much now because I'm more, I'm, I'm further th along the journey. So I'm back to being Vanessa now. Mm -hmm. um, you asked me about the experiment. Do you want to remind yes. me? Yes, yes, yes. About the experiment, because it sounds so, um, I mean, how, what did it actually involve? How did you, um, I know that it started with you reaching out to different scientists, but tell us a little bit about actually how did this happen and how did you manage to practically go about it? So to separate out the um, self-hypnosis experiment was an experiment within a larger experiment. That's the first thing to say. So the, the larger experiment is these 10 different modalities, techniques, um, whatever you'd like to call them. And they were different ways for me to interact with and um, to talk to myself and to meditate. And these are uh, mind training techniques and they were anything from mindfulness. So I started with an MBCT course. I tried uh, compassion meditation. So a lot of different Buddhist influences. I did Zen meditation. I did Kundalini yoga. I did, I'm going through the list. Vipassana. Mm. Um, I did, and I, um, I, so I did ten in total. But I, I breath work. Um, transcendental meditation. Transcendental meditation. Christian meditation. There were so many. <laughs> I sometimes forget the list. But I ended with psychedelics, which was the ultimate way to uh, to in, to interact with your own mind. Um, but it's a legitimate form of uh, a, a legitimate modality to put in my book because this was about finding out about yourself and finding the right way right. to to heal yourself, but also to understand why things maybe have played out in the way that they have in your life. So that was this massive curiosity. And I, and I went to the scientists and said, look, I want to do this uh, anyway. We'd used EEG in the past as one of our projects. And, and said, I said, I want you to record my brain. And they went, fantastic. I was very lucky because I had a good relationship with Cambridge by then. And so me going and saying this, um, they knew me and they could see the, um, the research perspective. And so this became part of a PhD with uh, Barbara Jacks and that's, she's just finishing that at the moment. And so for three years, I have worn an EEG headset, which is something that I have at home. I have a portable small one, and this has five electrodes, three at the front and two at the back. And this records my live brain activity every single time I used one of those modalities. And I would spend eight weeks meditating uh, every single day uh, as part of that research for that modality. And I kept a diary. And then literally the, the scientists have this massive hundreds and hundreds of hours of data of my brain as I kind of weave my way through all of these different modalities and, and they're interested in looking at my human experience. So they ask questions like, did you feel bored, distracted? Were you focused? Were you emotional during this meditation? They wanted to know me to scale and then to, to list how I felt during the, each meditation so that they could then get, they could map the meditation experience from my perspective. And there were other groups that were run as well. So it was, it's never been done before. It was a, a very adventurous, very unique experiment um, that I've been very privileged to be part of. Yeah, yeah. And uh, you did find that self-hypnosis um, for insomnia um, was helpful before your triggering events, but then in, you f also found that in the larger scheme of things, it didn't actually fully resolve all your sleep issues. So what was that differentiation? Yeah, so, to, so again, to go back in time to the talk, the TEDx talk, that 
that intervention with hypnotherapy and a self-hypnosis program worked incredibly well for that event. And this is where the mind is so complex and multi-layered and triggers that you identify at the time are totally appropriate and relevant, but your life changes and we are very complex beings. And what I was discovering is that when I was giving other talks is that I was starting to have sleepless nights again. And I'm going, well, what's happened? We've cured this. Mm. And actually it's not as simple as that. And what we realized is that we had cured, if you like to use that word, we had we had impacted part of the problem and not all of the problem. And that's what I then started to really have this respect for the unconscious mind, because we talk about talking to ourselves and, you know, but, but talking to the unconscious mind is a very specific thing. It's not this cognitive thinking mind. It's this right. much more deeper, powerful part of ourself that we can have a two way dialogue using self hypnosis. And that can be very powerful, but you need to, you need to prime it, you need to ask the right questions. And so we need to uncover what it was that was the problem. And for me, it was this fear of failure. Mm. Um, it was a fear of um, getting it wrong. And that was not something that I quite identified the first time around. It was more the fear of sleeping, but this was a much more deeply embedded belief. And that's what I had to work on was, and in fact, my fear of failure actually skewed my whole experiment because my unconscious mind got the wrong message, which was this experiment will work the best if you don't sleep. Oh. Which is crazy, but because we were doing this experiment, because, you know, everything we do is suggestion and in hypnosis, suggestion is the most, you know, that's how you prime the unconscious mind. So I picked up this message that I needed to not sleep because then that would make the results more dramatic which is fascinating to know that mm. the unconscious mind can be, it, it doesn't, the unconscious mind doesn't have this cognitive process that we have. It doesn't rationalize, it's emotional. So it was going to, if you don't sleep, you're going to succeed. Mm. And it was as simple as that. And so we had to kind of unwire that belief and reprogram my mind to, to actually see sleep again as this healing and nurturing and positive thing and not linked up to an experiment. So actually my experiment, I shot myself in the foot with my whole experiment during the book. <laughs> but, but even that was just, I mean, it's just part of what I was doing. It's this fascinating world. Um, and I learned so much, even from kind of getting it wrong, I learned so much. And I think, Vanessa, what you said about shooting yourself in the foot, I think sometimes that happens to all of us where that's when we have these profound realizations. And you're so right about the space of the mind where we really don't know what are our ulterior motives about something or what are we truly believing because sometimes the conscious mind is convincing you of so many things and I can so totally relate to the fear of failure as I'm sure multiple people listening can as well. Um, so I mean I think in the context of uh, I wouldn't even call that a failure I would call that a profound success because you had these amazing realizations and that's just so fascinating but in the context of all these experiments before I actually ask you about sleep itself I must ask did uh, this um, having this experiment and this three-year process of wearing this EEG monitoring uh, what did that do to you as a mother? How has it changed you as a mother in terms of looking at your kids' thoughts, beliefs? And um, do you attempt to tell them to uh, believe something else? Or do you just, has it changed you in any way? Because I can totally see myself telling my son uh, something from all my realizations of such an experiment. Yeah, I, one of the things I've learned because hypnosis is a, an integral part of, of my research and, and um, I never tell anybody anything <laughs> because <laughs> in actual fact, it's the best way for someone not to listen. And I mean that to both of the minds, the cognitive mind and the <laughs> unconscious mind does not want to tell what to do. So, um, but you're right, um, doing this kind of experiment, you know, it involved my entire family and I walked around the house wearing a very strange headset for three years 
and my children were kind of curious from the distance. They didn't want to be involved in any meditation and I never never imposed that on them. My, bod, my, my son and I do a body scan together quite regularly mm. as a relaxation tool at bedtime. And actually I do use some very, very gentle, suggestive language with him at nighttime to empower him to sleep. And, and that's a very, very gentle, and, and it creates an incredible bond between us. I mean, I've been doing that since he was seven or eight. We've been doing it for years and he still asks for it. So, so my meditation practice and the hypnosis tools I've learned have all bled out into my family in a very positive way they've become involved in it but from a kind of peripheral point of view it's connected us a lot more so me learning about myself made me kinder more patient less volatile at times you know less shouting on the school run so you know you can say don't do this but they'll do what you do and so me becoming more patient or holding my breath and going right no i'm not going to say that had a very very positive ripple effect on the rest of the um so vanessa in all these and i the fact that you're saying that there has been a little bit of spillover from these experiments into uh, your children's life both in terms of uh, guiding them gently but also in terms of bonding with them so what are the realizations that you feel um you had in terms of somebody who's chronically sleepless and i know that you have great empathy for that but uh what might you advise for somebody who's just starting off and is there something that they could begin with uh as of now which is simple like how you might guide your child is there something that you could share with us absolutely so i think the first thing is don't beat yourself up that's the first thing, kindness. Mm. And, and also perhaps um, maybe consider that you can't talk yourself out of a sleepless night. When this mind, this rational, chattery inner mind starts going off on one, that's very, very unhelpful. So, and, and this isn't the mind that will, in my view, will help you sleep. It's the bigger unconscious mind that we need to reassure and make feel safe. So sleep hygiene, I, I'm a big believer in routine and, and I know a lot of um, sleep scientists will, will reiterate that. Not having too much tech late at night, um, having a regular bedtime and following a really lovely, comforting relaxation routine at night. As human beings, we do like routine. We like familiarity. And so I often use, and even now I often use a body scan at nighttime, which is, um, there's lots and lots of different types, but they are where you systematically and sequentially move up your body and relax each part of it in, in sequence. And that can really, really help because that sends triggers and signals to the body that actually we are now shifting from our day and our, our busyness, our activity into a sleep mode. And so all of these send cues, all of these tools and cues to the brain that we are now shifting into this relaxation mode and and maybe without even giving yourself the pressure that okay we're going to sleep just relax first that is a really good segue into sleep so if i have um if i have a night where I'm, i've got a busy mind or whatever i will always use a body scan and that now i've become conditioned as well that that is a way of my body knowing it goes oh Right. Okay. So we don't have to think about this quite so much. And if you have got spiraling and spinning thoughts, that's fine. This is part of being human. It's part of this crazy world that we live in at the moment. You know, that sort of erratic, crazy mind is, is normal. What we maybe learn to do, and this is also bringing in a lot of the meditation practices and they all do it in different ways is to not interact with those thoughts you just go yeah crazy busy mind my gosh look at you you are all over the place but rather than going stop stop no 
it's this idea of pulling back. Put your mind onto your ankles and then onto your calf and your mind will do that. It will jump back to the busy mind. But the trick is to not engage, not get on the thought trains, not going shooting off, you know, down whatever avenue it takes you, but to pull your mind back to the body. And I find grounding my way through my body like that is a really helpful sleep tool. And I think, Vanessa, this sounds a lot like when you're trying to discipline a very mischievous child. Uh, and if you go saying, no, don't you dare do that, stop, stay still, no touching that, that's the first thing the child is going to do. Whereas if you are, what fun that looks like, hey, isn't that crazy? Then, you know, you kind of indulge them a little bit and then maybe they just start to... Uh, so it sounds like a mischievous child and, and of course in yoga it's the monkey mind uh, and of course grounding is great because just feeling that contact with the ground or your bed whatever is so it's a form of trusting and you mentioned right at the start how uh, you realize that the fact that you were losing sleep when these triggers came up for you it was public speaking uh, that it was a lot to do with trust, about feeling safe, feeling trust. Um, so that is a great, and I think what you mentioned was also that doing it regularly, you condition yourself and the, you just start to expect, you just tell yourself that, hey, you start to relax your body part by part from toe up to the head. Um, and you're just sending those cues to help you relax. And even though, Vanessa, you spoke about sleep hygiene and so many people do, I must tell you how many people know this and they're still looking at their phone and scrolling quickly through social media last thing in the night. You know, the finger is moving so fast with the touch screen moving down that Facebook um feed that um, it's creating this flurry in the mind and this busy busy mind at the last thing in the night so even though some of these things sound so simple i think we could all come back to actually applying these simple things on a regular basis um, and I want to ask you, because I was really at the end of your book, and I've been very blessed to get the sneak peek of it before we actually um, have it out for everyone else. And I came across this section at the end where you speak a little bit about finally, what were your realizations regarding these different modalities using the experiments of mapping your brain activity. So you had some realizations regarding all these modalities and we discussed this in the beginning that these include Vipassana, Buddhist meditation, mantra, transcendental meditation, Zen meditation, psychedelic, self-hypnosis, breathwork, kundalini yoga and mindfulness. Could you share a little bit about what each of these actually, what did you realize from the experiments in the context of each of these? So the book is called finding my right mind for very good reason <laughs> and one of the reasons um, I wanted to try all those techniques is because I think when people are exploring meditation they maybe try mindfulness or they might try something different but and they give it up too quickly and they think oh it doesn't work mm. and actually what I discovered is that there were clear benefits from every single technique but they were different benefits and they kind of targeted different areas of my life and that was the biggest learning for me so there isn't there isn't there isn't a meditation super bowl there isn't a winner because people often say to me which was the best and i'm glad you didn't ask me that because not, of course none of them are the best there's what suits your blueprint what mm. you yourself and also what you need at that time in your life so for example, I was looking to reconnect. I think one of the things that's probably very common post-trauma is a bit of a disconnect, a, a slight numbing. Again, this is a, a protection strategy. It's a coping mechanism. And I had disconnected and loving kindness, one of the Buddhist meditations I tried, was extremely challenging, but at the same time, really connected me back and and that was done through kindness. And this is a very powerful conduit to to understand yourself is realizing 
maybe how unkind you can be to yourself and how that bleeds out again into the world. And so using affirmations, which is where you repeat words and phrases like, may I be, may I be happy? You emanate that out to other people, go, may you be happy? You start with people you know and love, and then you go out to the neighbors or the shopkeeper, someone you don't know quite so well. And then you go out to people you actually have a problem with, and that's really quite challenging. And then you do the whole world. And this is an incredible practice. It, it is quite difficult to do mm. because it really hones in on that disconnect and that's uncomfortable. But what I realized is that uncomfortable and, and challenging and difficult is good because that's where the learning is. So that was one that. And I actually want to stop you for a second, Vanessa, because can you just describe how might someone actually do this practice? Like, how long should it be? Are they sitting, lying down? And uh, you mentioned going through this list of different people. So just actually give us a practice which we can follow. So a loving kindness practice um they vary in length i mean probably about 15 minutes and there's lots of guided tracks available um they're not too hard to find um yeah you you would sit cross-legged in a comfortable position um i'm actually a big believer that as long as you're not going to go to sleep you can choose whatever position is right mm. for you yeah but eyes closed ideally or someone sometimes people would prefer a soft gaze and you start with a little bit of mindfulness, which is just coming into the body that we've talked about, grounding yourself, being aware that you have a body and you're not just a floating head. This is actually really important at the beginning of any meditation practice is actually acknowledge the body that you have one. And that can be just through wiggling your toes or just, you know, touching your fingers and just, just realizing that you have this body. And then when you're feeling a little grounded, you start with these uh, phrases, may, and you start with yourself. Because in the in the West we are we're pretty bad at looking after ourselves, and this was can be the first stumbling block for a lot of people. So you say, "May I be well? May I be happy? Yeah. May I be safe?" And you can choose whatever word suits you for your life at that moment, and you will know what word you need. You know, "May I be comforted?" It could yeah. be anything. Um, for me, the may I be safe is always the one that gets me. <laughs> That's a very, a very I strong I can point. also think of may I forgive myself because we're beating ourselves up about so many things. Yeah. Exactly. So you choose, you know, if you need to give yourself some forgiveness and some kindness, may I be kind to myself. It's very powerful. And you start with that. In fact, even as I say it, my whole body is doing a little tingle because it's recognizing mm. this practice. And then you start moving to somebody that you care a lot about now. Again, in the West, sometimes people find this really difficult. They can't go to a family member even. And so if you need to go to your pet, if you've got a dog or a cat, that's also fine. It doesn't matter. It's about cultivating. It's about finding this kindness within you and starting to grow it. You grow it like a flower. And it doesn't matter if it's only, you know, a half-baked seed it's hardly anything there it doesn't matter because the more we do it the more we exercise the mind the more it will grow and that's one of the wonderful things about this practice so we start with um we move on to um your pet or your mom or your child or your kindly neighbor that you've got a great relationship it doesn't matter someone you care about and then you move on past that to um to somebody that you don't know particularly well um uh, you, I always chose the, the pharmacist. He's always the same person that I choose. But then the, the difficult one is where we choose somebody we have a problem with. And it's really a good idea to do somebody that's not a major conflict in your life, because that can be a bit of a challenge. I mean, mm. like physically can make your whole body tense up and actually can bring you out of the practice. So somebody that's just annoyed you recently. Um, mm. so you can practice giving kindness to them. And this is a really good part of the practice I found because it's it's hard, but actually the more you learn to do it, the more you feel better in yourself. That's the other thing. That's, That's right. Kind of the give, give. And then I love this. The I, I cut and paste like a football arena with thousands and thousands of people inside my mind and you send out, may you all be happy and well. May you all feel safe. May you all forgive yourself. And it's to the whole world and, and, and it's a really powerful concept and I love this practice. It's a really, it's a really good one to start with yourself 
And I feel that, you know, as you talk me through that, I felt I would also love to put my hands over my heart as I do this. Uh, I just intuitively felt that uh, that would complete the practice for me personally. I'd like you to tell us a little bit about the psychedelics and how that actually helped you with these realizations. Yeah. So the psychedelics came at the end of this journey because it's not something you take lightly. I yes. went to a legal retreat in Amsterdam. So I, and, and, and I should just caveat anything to do with psychedelics. I'm talking about it in a therapeutic framework. Yes, yes, not absolutely. Within, not, not within recreational. A, not that I will judge others, but for me, this was um, about self-healing and not about um, uh, recreation in yes. that sense. So, so there's a lot of research in psychedelics at the moment, psilocybin, MDMA, um, DMT, all these drugs that can elicit this non-ordinary state, which is this other way of communicating with ourselves, mm-hmm. and those very deep parts of ourselves and our belief systems that we actually don't normally have any access to. And I went to Amsterdam and my experience was fully curated, which means that I was um, surrounded by an incredibly experienced and devoted team of people who guide you through this whole experience. So there's a lot of preamble and talk and explaining. And then the ceremony itself, um, there were, I think there was 12 of us and we were guided through a psilocybin experience um which for me lasted an awfully long time it can last about five hours but for me it was about eight hours (laughs) (laughs) and that was extraordinary um you know that you are entering this experience when i talk about this this chattery mind the chattery mind got switched off finally and so the other parts of my psyche got to have a voice which was really interesting and of course a lot of the psychedelic experience for people, some it commonly goes back to childhood. You sometimes have a guide, you sometimes have someone from your life, or it can just be a thing, will take you on a journey where you explore yourself and every facet of yourself. I described it as being a little bit like, if you think that your life is a theatre stage, the psychedelic experience takes you backstage. Mm. You see all the rigging behind the curtains. You see who's the curtains closed. Mm. Who's who's the actors? Who's the operators? And you know, even further back than that, you know, who's in the dressing room waiting to come on stage? Who hasn't come on stage yet? You know, mm. lots of analogies you can use with that as a as a metaphor. And for me, that's what it was like. It was like this delving back down deep into the, the watery depths of myself. Um, but for therapeutic reasons. So I, I learned a lot about why trust, why safety was such a big thing for me. Also having a voice was something mm. that came out for me. Yeah. And yeah. and it and it, again, it, it, it feeds out into your life. It's a slow drip, drip effect. And it has ricochets, positive ricochets throughout um, the coming months after an experience. Uh, and in fact, Vanessa, these are... Um a big part of Himalayan yogis. So there's psychedelics have been used in terms of trance and meditative deeper state experiences for such, I mean, from really ancient times. And they've found that it can unlock certain areas of the brain, which otherwise you don't have access to. Something like an access denied and the psychedelics are actually the key to open up those areas. So when you say positive um, repercussions of this, what, what, how could you describe it? How did this spill over into your life going forward? What did it actually give you? Well, from the psychedelics point of view, but also from all the practices. All the practices. Yeah, for the, the one word that just jumps into my mind every single time is this kindness. I'm mm. much kinder to myself. I don't judge. I mean, I still do because we all, it's a human nature. But what happens is that um, as the judgment jumps in, the kindness jumps in as well and it's bigger. And the kindness just goes, no, you can't do that. Let's not do that that's not going to that's beautiful it's not going to help actually but yeah this idea of um being a little bit more compassionate towards myself is a very very powerful learning 
And I think, don't you think that um, many times when somebody appears to be frustrated or angry as people, there's so much going on. And I always feel that somewhere they're missing something to themselves. So they're not giving themselves what they need, which is why they're kind of lashing out at the world. And having that compassion for yourself is actually the first step towards having compassion as a universe. Uh, It begins with you feeling safe, feeling secure. Um, And I do want to ask because this one statement in the end of your book popped out at me right there that when it came to all these modalities and the experiments that you went with, you found almost as if there was a clear winner, something that stood out in the context of sleep. So what was that? And what can you tell us a little bit more about that to help people as we end our conversation? Yeah, so when it came to the sleep stakes and that sleep experiment, there was no question that hypnosis and hypnotherapy was downright the winner um what was interesting is that by the end of the experiment i kind of i know it sounds crazy i didn't care because my learning about myself was so powerful but actually um mindfulness because that was that we did a control and we did an active part of our experiment so just to explain how the experiment worked we i had two talks coming up for one i practiced three weeks of mindfulness and for the other talk i practiced three weeks of self-hypnosis And the mindfulness did nothing. I slept, I think, an hour and a half before the talk. And on the uh, three weeks leading up to the second talk, which actually was more scary because it was to a group of uh, master students at Cambridge University. (laughs) So I was a little, I was very intimidated. Um, I slept about six or seven hours, which isn't a full night, but it was significantly better. And also I had the the calmness that comes with what self-hypnosis has given me the relationship with sleep had been kind of rebuilt again and so yeah self-hypnosis for me um and i still use it i still use it all the time and you constantly have to go in and reprogram and readjust and tweak and and look at the messages but ultimately the way i do that is is hypnosis that's beautiful so any practices that we can i mean i've done um couple of episodes on self-hypnosis but I'd love to hear from you again like you described a short um, kindness um, gratitude practice something could you share a small practice that we can actually begin with in terms of or do you need to actually uh, be guided and you need to learn this Yeah, you need to learn it. And the the guided tracks, I used uh, Diane Haspel-Johnson's sleep Mm, program. um, Because one of the things that's really important with hypnosis and hypnotherapy is that the language used is um, targeted and very specific. It's, It's curated and it follows the architecture of sleep itself. And so you do need, I would always recommend, a reputable um, hypnotherapist track and somebody who maybe specializes in sleep. And the idea is to listen to that regularly. In doing it once is going to have a limited effect. You need this repetition. You need to recondition your mind, uh, soothe those beliefs and uh, allow the hypnotherapy to weave its magic. And that is done over you know, I, it took me three weeks. So I did three weeks of listening to um, a track, which was about 20 minutes long every evening. And I would do that, you know, very easy to do at the end of the night, put headphones on to just lay in bed. It's very relaxing. But those tracks are very, very specifically worded. And that's the point of hypnosis. It, it's it's not just anything. And, and a hypnotherapist knows exactly how to do that and to make sure that that's always within a safe environment. Right. And, and done in a professional manner. So yeah, but there's lots of people around, there's lots of tracks around. It's not a difficult area to research. And in fact, uh, on our own show, we have episode number 32, which has Jordan Rystrom with a guided self-hypnosis practice and Diane as well, whom you mentioned, we have her as well. So I will also link those episodes to this one so people can actually take a listen and do the practice. But your journey was just 
I think I had goosebumps and shivers up my spine through our entire conversation. But Vanessa, before I let you go, you need to complete our sleep whisperer mantra, which is if sleep is the new medicine. Yes, sleep is the new medicine, um, but you are the therapist, you are the teacher, and you are your own doctor. Perfect, Vanessa. Thank you so much for giving your time. And I urge everyone, if you've been fascinated by Vanessa's story, grab a hold of the book, which is just releasing, already released. And um, it's it just goes in a much deeper level to all that we spoke. So you must get your hands on that. Vanessa, where can people actually find you? So they can find me on Instagram. I am Vanessa Potter Writes. That's W-R-I-T-E-S. I have a website, vanessapotter.com. And Finding My Right Mind is available in all bookshops. I'm, I'm sure it's going to reach great places because, as I said, I was blessed to get the copy way ahead of time. And I was actually frozen to that chair behind me a few days ago when I was reading that. And I was just, uh, I couldn't answer my son or my husband when they walked into the room because I was so wrapped up in the uh, chapters about your story and sleep. Uh, and I'm actually going to read the whole book as well, because uh, I um, had just enough time before our conversation to get through those specific chapters. But it was so interesting that I know that I want to read the whole book from the start to the finish. Thanks for being on the show, Vanessa, and good luck with the book and hope to have you back sometime talking about maybe psychedelics as an entire episode in itself yeah psychedelics is a, a big subject can i also just mention i've forgotten because i've just yes. started a podcast as well oh has, lovely it, it follows on from the book actually because i learned so much and i it's, i'm just so curious that is my my modus operandus is curiosity yes so it's called finding your right mind and that's a lovely podcast just started so if Aww. anybody interested, they can pick up on that as well but oh, thank you I so much for having me. <laughs> yeah it's been great everyone i hope you enjoyed the show just a reminder that this podcast is for information purposes only this is not a substitute for professional care by a doctor or otherwise qualified health professional this information is provided on the understanding that it does not constitute medical or other professional advice or services if you are looking for personal help on your health journey do seek out a medical practitioner please do make your own healthcare decisions based upon your research and in partnership with your doctor or otherwise qualified healthcare professional it is in no way intended as medical advice as a substitute for medical counseling or as treatment or cure for any particular health condition be sure to always work directly with a qualified health practitioner before making any changes to your diet or lifestyle that may feel out of your realm of comfort or understanding. If you are looking for an allied functional medicine practitioner, do seek out more information on www.phytothrive.com or www.sleepwhisperer.pro. It is important that you have someone who is qualified and understands your health personally in order to provide adequate care, especially when it comes to chronic health conditions. 